0: good to see such a good uh, turnout this morning for our uh, our, Bibles, our Bible hour, our teaching hour. It's quite often that uh, this starts with a very low number, but this morning I see there's quite a number in and it's, uh, it's a joy to see you all. Uh, so I have been uh, going through a, a subject, I've started this a few weeks back, um, broadly called Our Only Hope. Uh, and subtitle the supremacy of Christ in a postmodern world. And for the past two weeks, we've looked at Christ and discouragement. So we're dealing with Christ and discipleship for this morning. And when we talk about Christ and discipleship, it's almost impossible not to go to that verse, right? That verse is what commonly known as the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 says, "Go therefore." And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you till the end, to the end of the ages. So this is a verse that invariably we turn to when we start on any teaching or preaching of discipleship. And discipleship is a very broad subject. There's a lot of places we can go to help us understand what it means and how it, how it, is, how it, how it works out in our lives. <clears throat> and this morning, we don't have much time, so I have a very narrow focus, and I'm going to try and bring us back to our overarching theme of living as Christians in a postmodern world. Uh, I'm not going to be talking much on that itself, but I will try and bring it back at the end to show that even as disciples, we have to be cognizant of the fact that the world we live in, as we said before, is a hostile, adversarial, and threatening world. And that's at every level of our Christian walk. We don't live amongst friends. There may be family, there may be acquaintances, and on a human level, on a normal level, you may have friends that you consider to be your friends, but on a spiritual level on the level that impacts our lives for eternity, we live in a hostile world. We are in this world, not of it, and we have to find a way of living in this world true to Christ, obeying His Word, glorifying the Father, and still being relevant to a world that doesn't love us. The world that's the enemy, that are enemies of the cross. And so, we come to this verse, which is the sending out of or the commissioning, rather, of the disciples before Jesus ascends to heaven. And this is the start of the global evangelistic program of the church. Uh, I know we quite often focus on missionary outreach programs. and This is the overarching, the big one. This is the church being commissioned to evangelize the world. And so it's clear from the scripture that disciples are not born, they are made. Who makes disciples out of people? Who makes disciples? Christ's disciples. Sorry?
1: Christ's disciples.
0: Christ's disciples, absolutely. And did they have a model to model their discipling on? Jesus, you're right. So David is right, and was that Clayton? What you want to be there? So Jesus. So the very the very making of disciples is modeled by Jesus Christ Himself, and I want you to be be, to to be aware of this. Of the various places I'm talking this morning, every one of them that's required of disciples is modeled by Christ first. So he doesn't he doesn't say, "Well, this is what you should do," Uh, and you lift your on your own. He models it. He sets the example. And so when they go out and do discipling, they know exactly what it looks like. Jesus does. Jesus makes disciples. Uh, John chapter 4, verse verse 1. Now when Jesus... Actually, actually let's go to John chapter 4. Let's go to John chapter 4. I think it's important we read that just to get this uh, as a starting point for this morning. John chapter 4. And verse. Uh, well, I'm going to give what I'm going to give. just sorry, my apologies. My eyes, my specs, are... I'm having problems with my eyes. And my specs are giving me trouble. Hmm. All right, I will find this very right now. Jesus uh, it says, "Now when Jesus learned that Pharisees and heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples in John." Uh, I should have it in front of me, and I can't see it. All right, verse one. Now, when Jesus learned, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, this verse tells that Jesus was making disciples. When Jesus called people to Himself, He gave the eternal life, and then He made disciples. So, the making of disciples is a process that takes place even in the case of Jesus. After eternal life has been uh, become a reality in someone who's been saved, but not only does Jesus make disciples, as David has said to us, the disciples make disciples, and we've been to this verse already in Matthew 28 verse 16 to 19, where it says that Jesus commissioned them to make disciples. Jesus makes disciples, disciples make disciples. And that making disciples in Matthew chapter twenty-eight, that is the main point of that whole that, that whole section. Very often we, we look at it very differently, because the English is sometimes a little bit misconstruing. But the making of disciples is a clear command, it's the main command in that verse verses in Matthew twenty-eight. Jesus not only makes disciples, but he commands his disciples to make disciples, and if we think that that was only those disciples have a commission, well, we find that that model goes on throughout the New Testament. In fact, in Acts, we find that Paul makes disciples. Acts chapter 14. Paul also makes disciples. And go to Acts chapter 14 because there's something I want to show you there and lead back into where we are. Right now, Acts chapter 14. So Paul has, uh, and Barnabas are um, on, the, on, on the missionary trip. Um, Paul is in Lystra, and in Lystra there are some problems. Um, and we get down to verse uh, 19, which says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, so there were disciples in Lystra, and Paul... Uh, had gone there to meet them, But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. When they had preached, this is when Paul and Barnabas, when they had preached the gospel in that city, and they made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So we see that this pattern uh, continues to be seen in the New Testament. Christ makes disciples, he baptizes them. In Matthew chapter 28, the disciples are told to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them. We find that Paul, as he's going on his missionary journey, that he and Barnabas preach the gospel, people are saved, and he makes disciples, and brings them under the teaching of the word of God under his ministry. So, the question we have to ask is... uh, As we see the command is to make disciples, and the command is given to the disciples, and then Paul emulates that, and we see it's going to be a model for the church. The question is, do we have a choice about making disciples? Are we able to choose whether we want to make disciples or not? Is it kind of a, this is not my gift. Why say no? Clayton? It's a command. So understand clearly, while we sometimes try and get around this in whatever way we do, um, we don't have an option of not making disciples. Disciple-making is an obligation of every single disciple who's part of the Church of Jesus Christ. Every local assembly should be embarking on some level of discipleship, uh, disciple-making, not only corporately, but every individual christian should be embarking on some form of disciple making now when we see these words when we see the verse in chapter 28 of matthew very often we think that we are told to go and make disciples well that's how the english reads but the main the main and only command is to make disciples and the and the attachment of that making disciples to the going which is not the main verse, which is not the main, the main thought, does indicate, though, that these two go together. So discipleship doesn't happen when you're sitting and doing nothing. That's what I get from that go and make. Uh, attaching the word going to making in the English gives them kind of a, a similar impetus. The main thought is to make disciples, but it's not happening if you're static and doing nothing. It's got to be a conscious effort. You've got to be involved mentally, spiritually, and physically in doing something, being active, and, in, and as you are going, and the going could be a, uh, your engagement with your walk as a Christian, as a believer, in that process of going, you make disciples. So that would go really modifies this act of making disciples. And then there are two requirements. For discipleship, it's not just a matter of going and making a disciple; that you lead the person to dangle on their own. It's very dangerous when we uh, evangelize the lost, and sometimes it's outside of the parameters of a church body. And we lead someone to Christ, or we, are, or, or we certainly let them have a, uh, present the gospel to them, and they eventually come to Christ and they save them. We say them, "Well, go on your own, find a church of your own, and see if you can settle down somewhere." It's 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 not. The biblical model. Once that person has been led to Christ, they need to come under the teaching of God's Word. And the way they do that is to be part of a body like this. So there are requirements for disciples uh, to follow as they disciple others. Uh, the first thing they have to do is they have to go, they have to teach, or sorry, baptize. So the immediate call to obedience. Uh, is the next thing that happens in the life of a disciple. Identifying with Christ and with His people. We have to be very clear, but according to what Matthew chapter 8 is recording about Jesus' words, it is that those are connected. You make disciples as you're going, and what you have to then do is to baptize them. There is no... Understanding the scripture of unbaptized disciples. If you're not baptized, you don't qualify to be called a disciple because that's the first thing a disciple needs to experience: hear the word, come to salvation. Those who you come under the under the fellowship of a church, and you are made a disciple, and you are baptized. The very nature of discipleship is that of obedience. And this is shown by submitting to believers' baptism. You can't be a disciple and be disobedient. It's it's, it's counterintuitive. It's an oxymoron. Uh, A a disobedient disciple is not really a disciple. And you'll see that later on from some of the words we'll use. So, while you're going, make disciples. And the very first thing you encourage them and you persistently encourage them to do is get baptized. Then... Once they have been baptized, the second requirement for disciples is that they are taught. Disciples need to sit under teaching. Nobody disciples themselves. Nobody grows properly and correctly uh, in God's word by discipling themselves. Even those uh, who are eloquent in the word and who come to know God's word by themselves eventually need to come under the teaching of the apostles' doctrine and that is found in a body like this, as you know from Acts chapter 2, that as the Lord added to the church, they continued in the apostles' doctrine, in the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And those things are corporate functions within the church where disciples attach themselves to a body, they, 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 they learn, they grow, they disciple others, and so we perpetuate that life uh, in Christ. Elton. Right. Yes. Um would you say that
1: um is the order of doing it or it's just like this is not particularly pertaining to like this is the order in which you do it when you go out, uh, you go baptize and teach, or it's just it's just there for this is what we need to do, but it's not in like
0: an order. So think of the order. The first so remember what i what I've said and what is clear is that the command is to make disciples. And as we read the text, it, it should be read, as as you are going, make disciples. So therefore, the implication is that you are already busy, that you're already engaged in living a Christian life, and as you are doing that, you make disciples. Then, immediately the, the Lord says to them, make disciples, and then He tells them, two things that, that must happen, baptizing them, and teaching them. So, while very often we find the reverse happens, we find that... People are saved. They come into a church like this and they sit under the teaching, and they've never been baptized. So it's an incomplete process taking place in their life at the beginning of the Christian life. And that order that we see in in, in Matthew is an order we should be following as much as we can. Except we cannot force people to do things. So we cannot force somebody to be baptized, and uh, we cannot. And we cannot make, the people, we cannot make disciples if we're, not, if we're not engaged in doing the work of the Lord amongst people. So, yes, we go. In the going, we make disciples. And when people are made disciples, the first thing we encourage them to do is to acknowledge that they are now a, a, identified with Christ. They do that through baptism. And when that is done, they are brought into a fellowship like this, and they sit under teaching, and they grow. Again, I say, I say that it um, doesn't mean that they're not baptized, they can't learn. But the first thing they should learn is obedience. And obedience to God's word would then uh, make, uh, would imply that they should be baptized in obedience to. So that order is, the second part, not locked in concrete, but it's the way that the model has been given to us by Christ. Any comments? Denver? Yes.
1: Yeah, so, um, I want to talk about the order, of uh, and teaching God together, but going, yep. goes with me. Yes. As, as you said earlier, mm. Absolutely. Yeah. If you go to Acts chapter two, you see that being uh, practiced in chapter one. So when they receive the word, this is salvation, they were baptized. So the very first thing that they do is baptism. Yep. Um, and then verse forty-two, and they and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Yep. The very next thing they do is yep. devoted themselves to teaching. But if you want to talk about order, the historic example that we have is Acts two. Baptism. Yes. Is to say, these are the components <coughs> Correct that, in Correct. Teaching, that the order is not as important in Matthew as you do actually
0: see in Acts and Yeah. I'm not sure if you were outside but we did quote that Acts chapter two yeah. a, a support for this. Okay, this. No, no, yeah, I understand. So yeah, you're absolutely right. And that is um, that gives us exactly the pattern of, of what has taken place. So to answer your question, Alton, you do understand that from Acts Chapter Two there is a far clearer definition of that. Yeah. All right, okay. So, anybody can, anybody can attach themselves to a church. Uh, we've seen it happen in many places. Uh, but how do we identify disciples uh, that follow a biblical model? So I'm going to look at three marks of a true disciple. Uh, and I'm going to try and show you from specific wording... Uh, how that packs out, uh, uh, unpacks. And we can see that disciples can be identified not only for others to see, but that we ourselves can recognize whether we are conducting our lives as disciples should be conducting their lives. So this is a challenge to all of us, it's a challenge to me, and I trust it's a challenge to all of us to see whether we are making disciples because we are disciples. Disciples. We don't only recognize ourselves as believers, and as saints, and as Christians, but also as disciples. And I think it is a, I think it is a, a lost, in a sense, a, a lost understanding of ourselves. Uh, the discipleship we when we talk about disciples immediately we think about uh, the New Testament disciples um, in, in, in the Gospels and in Acts. Yet we are also disciples. Made in the same way, uh, living and conducting life under the same uh, um, principles, obeying the same word. So, what are the marks of a true disciple? Number one, up there I have unwavering fidelity. Fidelity just means faithfulness to a person, faithfulness to uh, what you believe, loyalty, uh, that you do something in such a way that you are unwavering in your belief and in what you do. John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In this passage just before this, we find that there are those who claim to believe him, and from that passage, which we're not going to go into uh, it's not totally clear whether they're believing in him or believing about his Messiahship or believing that he's a prophet. But nonetheless, Jesus addresses that very, that very response and he says to them, if you continue to follow my teaching, you're really my disciples. So again, this goes back to the point that Alton raised that there the, are the, 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 the things identify us as disciples and we have to be consistent in that to qualify as disciples. If you continue to follow my teaching, uh, or rather let me read it back in ESV, uh, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In the Net Bible states it this way, which maybe helps us more with our current English language. Then Jesus said to those Judeans who had believed him, If you continue to follow my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The mark of a true disciple is continuation in the instruction of his or her teacher. That that person follows the leader or the teacher unreservedly. The true mark of a disciple means that they follow the teaching of the one that they come to trust without deviation. And only if they believe without doubt or hesitation, if they believe in this way, they are true followers, their allegiance is certain. When they believe in the leader in this way, they do not desert him. They continue to follow him. Their total commitment is proof of their unwavering fidelity. This is what it means to be a disciple. Not just to say, I believe, but to believe, follow, and be taught, and learn as the this person who is discipling you as that leader models to you what you should be doing, how you should be living, how you should be responding to God's word. Right now, we're going through a situation in the world which has been uh, initiated by a man called Yevgeny Prigozhin. You all know about this if you've been watching the news. Russia's on a. Uh, There's insurrection in Russia. Who would have believed that? And Trump's not even involved. It's insurrection in Russia. And this man, Prigozhin, uh, is the leader of the largest. A private army, in fact, they were so powerful and strong and large, they were fighting on Russia's behalf in Ukraine. The point is, he has turned. And what is significant is that his men follow him unreservedly. And they don't use him, but they follow him. This, is man, this man is a criminal. He's, his entire army is peopled by ex jail birds, ex-criminals. And yet, when, when he moves, they move with him because they have bought into his philosophy... They've bought into what he he presents to them. They've bought into his ethos. And when he moves, they move. And that's really a picture of what a disciple should be like. When our Savior says this is required of us, we should do that unreservedly. When he says go there, we should go there unreservedly. And disciples do that. They, 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 They abide in his word and they obey his word Without any uh, hesitation and without uh, deviating from the course that they're on. One of the marks of a true disciple is precisely this not forsaking the teaching and his, the teacher and his teaching. The direct outcome of a disciple who continues to follow the teaching of his Lord is being able to know truth. This is what Jesus says to them right there. He says, and I repeat it, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciple. So there's a the qualification. We abide in his word, we his disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Part of the requirement for coming to know the truth is that we are true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we are abiding in his word, that we are following his teaching. The very mention of this word truth will set alarm bells. Ringing the minds of self respecting postmoderns. And I'm trying to bring, I'm not going to be dwelling a lot on this, but I want to weave back into the understanding this is taking place in a world that's postmodern, and we talk about things like truth. And to us, as we believe the scriptures, truth is absolute. And this very uh, mention of truth will ring bells in the head of a self respected postmodern the one thing they cannot see to is absolute truth and the truth that is available to the faithful disciple is absolute we do not believe in something that changes uh with the times with the culture uh with with historical events uh, with the way we feel uh the truth that we believe the word of god it is absolute, and this truth is the gospel. The count of the absolute sinfulness of the absolute sinfulness of sin, the count of the absolute lostness of the unsaved, and the uh, and the count of the absolute assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The truth that we believe in, the truth that is available to the disciple, is absolute. And because of the absoluteness of that truth, we should be ready to embrace it, to. Uh, uh, um, live according to it and to die for it. Uh, That's what the apostles did. They were prepared to die for the truth that changed their life significantly. The quicksand of postmodern thought is threatened and scandalized by the solid foundation of biblical truth. Uh, And Jesus, again, I remind you, says that disciples will know the truth and the truth will set them free. When we think about truth, we have to think about what the Lord Jesus Christ said himself about himself in relation to truth. And this verse, John 14, verse 6, uh, drives a nail into the coffin of everyone who wants to live a life that's relative. Because when it comes to what Jesus says about himself, it is absolute. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except to me. This is... The teaching that we follow. And this is the man who has given us a teaching and this is the one we follow as disciples. Jesus said, I am the only way. I am the absolute truth. And I am the exclusive life. There's no one, no way, no other means by which we can come to the Father except through him. And this knowledge of the truth will have a practical, actual outworking in the life of the disciple. He or she will be set free from the slavery to sin. Number one, you are set free by the truth. And number two, you are set free by the Son. John chapter 8, verse 36. The verse in the same portion we read earlier. And so, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The outcome of living in complete fidelity to his Master... is a life of sanctification for the two disciples. That's the whole point about John chapter 8. It's about, it's, it's about abiding in his word, it's about becoming a disciple, and it's about knowing the truth, it's about being set free from the ravaging uh, onslaught of sin, because right in this very chapter, later on, they claim that they were not slaves, and Jesus knows that they were slaves, to the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, but their slavery, they talk about that because they are sons of Abraham, not slaves to sin, they are. And everyone who is not a disciple is a slave to sin. Only those who are disciples, those who abide in his word, those who are truly disciples, know the truth. And the truth that we know, and the truth that we live by, will set us free. We are set free by the truth that is his word, and we are set free by the Son. Any questions? Donovan.
1: Rick.
0: Well, I think if you, if you simply, uh, even in John's Gospel, um, if you're able to take into who is, the, who is the center point, who is the beacon to which all of us are called to have our lives not only changed, but to find eternal life. And you, if, you, if you go through John's Gospel, you'll find that Jesus Christ identifies himself as the I Am, who is the only one who needs, who would have authority over lives, who not only provides life, but provides sustaining life, and is one to whom we have to bow and worship because of the very use of that word, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the good shepherd, identifies him as the supreme authority in the life of any Christian, and he sets himself up as the only source of, of life, of, 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 of guidance, of truth, of truth. And we all are, sub- are subjected to that. We all have to submit to that. Even those who set themselves up as pastors and as shepherds, if they are, if they are good under-shepherds, they desire will to see that their flock goes to the true shepherd, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, and not themselves. If they are not, and if they are self-serving, they will always be uh, bad shepherds. They will be evil shepherds. They will be leading the flock astray, and God will hold them accountable. It'll take a little while to get people to sometimes come to an understanding, but you can only show it through the Word and point Christ to Christ as the only one who, to whom we give our allegiance. To no one else. Even as you live, even as we serve in a church like this, while we submit to each other, and while you are under the under the shepherding of the elders, your primary allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. And that allegiance is given to Him on the basis of what He's taught in His Word. That's why we need to know and abide in the Word as we abide in that word we come to understand the truth of that word we teachers and we are then a disciple who is, who is living a life that that is that is modeled not only by the life of Jesus Christ because he, remember he too submitted to his father and he obeyed his father and so he showed what life of obedience looks like and he only obeyed his father so uh, that is a challenge we have today but I think going, that's one place to start and showing that Christ is a supreme authority yeah, can, can I,
1: yes please so Matthew 28 yes uh,
0: Absolutely, And so the life that we live as disciples is a life of sanctified living. And this is really what chapter 8 of John is about, about living a sanctified life. A life that's lived in the light of the truth that we receive as we abide in his word. And the question we have to ask ourselves before we move on is, are you and I active disciples at this time? This is a challenge. It's a challenge to my heart. Are we actively engaged as disciples. Not only are we being discipled, but are we also discipling? What evidence is there in our lives that we are disciples? Um, are we being discipled? Uh, and What prevents us from being discipled? What do you think is the primary reason why people don't want to be discipled? L. Z. it? Yeah. And what drives that desire to not submit, usually? Yes. Sometimes you don't want to have your sin exposed. I think the, I think the prime, one of the primary causes is pride. We don't want to. Sub, we come back to submitting, and, 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 and that is sinful in itself. That we do not want to submit to someone else. Either we assume we know better, or we don't want to just be a disciple. We think that we can go it on our own, and it's the, it, it is the, it's a stifling um, throat hold over discipleship we need to not only disciple others as we disciple others we learn by that discipling process because as we disciple others we will also see the, the, the points of correction in our own lives being pinpointed but we also need to be discipled by others so we should pray that we can, okay, we can inculcate a discipling ethos at Living a Bible Church so that we are discipling and being discipled as we walk with Christ so number two Number two, mark of two disciple, proof of life. We all know what's proof of life, right? We've all watched enough movies to know that if somebody's kidnapped and they ask you for the money, what do you ask them before you give the money? Proof of life. You want to know that the person who has been kidnapped is still alive. Show signs of life before you pay the money. So, one of the marks, another mark of the disciple, is a proof of life. Um, fruit that a plant produces, and that people can see, is the, visible, is the visible evidence of an inner working power. Go to John chapter fifteen. John chapter 15. <clears throat> and so I've just said that within a plant, we see this, uh, this life force that uh, is evident by the condition that the plant is in. A healthy plant that produces healthy fruit is proof of a vibrant life. And here's a specific plant chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ as a, as a means of teaching what life in a disciple looks like. Verse 1, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So we know that in this particular case, Jesus Christ is the vine. Uh, I know there's some, uh, some commentators say that he's the root, but he says he's the vine. He is, that, he, is that, he is whatever it takes to be in place so that the branches can have life. I'm the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Uh, we we'll come back to that very shortly. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This verse speaks about disciples who are both strong and weak, and how they eventually flourish at the hand of the vine dresser. I know that some see this as uh, those he takes away, those who are not disciples, and those that bear fruit are disciples. Uh, But he is speaking to the disciples. Uh, This very passage is some of the last words he speaks before he goes to his death. So he's speaking to his disciples. Uh, When it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, that word, takes away, is used elsewhere as the word, lift up. And and I'm inclined to agree with, with those who say that what you see here is a tree which exhibits both conditions of a vine. Either you have a weak branch that is down, which needs to be lifted up, and those in viticulture and in farming will know that when the branch of a vine or fruit tree hangs down, it's unhealthy, it gets contaminated, needs to be lifted up and literally tied back so it can become strong. So that to me speaks about a disciple that is weak or not fully developed, developed as a disciple. And every branch that does bear fruit, this is a healthy branch. A branch that bears fruit is healthy mm. and well and live, but it still needs pruning. So we have a branch that is weak, and a branch that is strong, and both of those branches need the attention of the vine dresser. It doesn't make sense to see this verse as a contrast between believers and unbelievers, but rather between productive and non-productive disciples. That's what I explained by by Lift Up. And we find that uh, the phrase in me that the Lord uses, he says, He says, Every branch in me, so every branch in that in the, in in that verse is in Him. He says, the phrase "in me" is used sixteen times in John's Gospel, and in each case it refers to fellowship with Christ. It's inconsistent to say the phrase in thirteen two refers to a person who merely professes to be saved but is not. A person in me is always true of a Christian, and we see that this is what Christ is saying. These are these are believers. One is a disciple who is weak or undeveloped disciple, and one is a disciple we strong. And perhaps we should rather see verse 2 together with verse 5 to get understanding of how that plays out in the life of a disciple. We see in verse 2, together with verse 5, the progression of discipleship. Verse 2, we see a person who has got no fruit. They are not abiding in Christ. Then we see, as he says, a person who has some fruit. This person abides but needs pruning. The end of verse 2 he speaks about much fruit, abides with correct response to the painful pruning. And in verse 5 he speaks about, uh, sorry, in verse 2 he speaks about more fruit and in verse 5 about much fruit. And so there seems to be a progression from in verse 2 and, and through verse 5 about uh, disciples who are seen metaphorically in the pruning of branches where they bear no fruit, some fruit, more fruit and then much fruit. And that should be the way a disciple's life develops. And this is further supported by verse 3, where he says to them, already you are clean. So he's speaking to those, he refers to in verse 2, and he says, already you are clean, because of the word that I've spoken to you. So salvation is not under question here. It's really the thought about fellowship with Christ, abiding in Him, and Him in us. And fruitfulness in the life of the disciple is evidence of that life-giving fellowship with Christ. So a disciple not only has to be abiding in the Word and be faithful, but the disciple should also give evidence of life, proof of life, and the proof of life, that evidence of life can only be true if we abide in Christ and He abides in us. There is an expectation that disciples evidence this reality by producing fruit. Look what he says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We have a life of abiding in Christ and Christ. In us. Now, this question was asked in another forum. What does it mean to have Christ in us and us in Christ? It's about fellowship. It's about we, all, we think, we think um, materialistically of things being in each other materialistically. And even when we speak about spiritual things, we don't fully grasp. The implication, but from John chapter fifteen, is clear that the abiding of us in Christ and the abiding of of Christ in us is a clear indication of a life that's in, that's in fellowship, in union. That's what the metaphor is. When a branch of a vine is grafted in part or other part of the vine, that branch is part of the vine, but the life of the vine flows in the branch. So there is a symbiosis between the branch and the vine, which is which is critical. For the branch to remain alive. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot be a fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So here's the metaphor and the reality. Just as a branch will die if it is not a part of the vine. If it's cut off and thrown away, which, is, which this metaphor speaks about. Then it becomes unfruitful in the same way. Unless you abide in me, you can also bear no fruit. Then he says in verse 5 of chapter 15, I am the vine. You are the branches. So, we know clearly who Christ is speaking about. He uses a metaphor to help the the disciples understand how abiding in Him and how He abiding in them, that fellowship, is evidence of real life, of true life, and that life is evidence that they are true disciples. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 4 and 5 clearly indicates that Jesus is speaking about himself and his disciples. And it also shows the complete dependence on him for the fruitfulness. We are required to live fruitful lives. We should be displaying the fruit of the Spirit. We should be be displaying a life that is lived in such a way that we're not living in discouragement. We're not being drawn down by the things of the world, that we live a contented life, a life of rejoicing despite the sorrows and trials that we go through. And all of that encompasses what it means to be living in Christ and Christ in us. And we live a life that's fruitful. And that life in and of itself really is evidence that we that we that we have life. Those who uh in verse six. Verse six: if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch that withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. This is a challenging verse. Um, This verse does seem to say things that we almost don't want to think about, and yet we have to go down this road. Um, it says one of three things. There are three views about this verse. I'm gonna give you all three and then see where we can land. Number one some say that this verse indicates that people can lose their salvation. What's our immediate response? If you're thinking doctrinally and theological, what's your immediate response? No way, right? Now we gotta find ways to prove that, and we won't do that now, but we know that once you are saved, you cannot lose your salvation because our salvation depends on whom? On God, on Christ. In dwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has given us eternal life and he empowers us. And so because we are saved by Christ, because of the work of Christ, and kept in Christ, we cannot lose our salvation. So we can ignore that as a interpretation of verse six. Others say that perhaps it's speaking about the beamer Seat of Christ. And they say that because of the wording. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and, and withers. And branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So immediately think about what? The judgment of Christ, where we will have what presented before Christ? Gold, precious stones, silver, ore, hood, yeah. hay, and stubble, and that's burnt up. So some think that this is what this is speaking about. And there may be some uh, value in that. But there's a third view which we should also consider. That those who fail, who fail to abide produce no fruit, bring no glory to God, and are as worthless as dead branches that are thrown into the fire. What some do is they try and use verse 6 to interpret verse 2. We should rather use verse 6 and see the next two verses 7 and 8 where the opposite is shown in the life of a disciple. The, the play between the metaphor of the branch and the actual disciple makes this verse challenging. Uh, but this is actually a metaphor. So in verse 6, we see that if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So you'll be fine. He starts with the actual and then he moves into the metaphor. And, and the branch of the burnt is metaphorical. It doesn't say that those who fall away are being burned. It's the metaphor of the branches being burnt, And the reason why that is being said in this metaphor, in this portion, I believe, is because the metaphor of the vine in this case is very, very specific. What is a vine good for? Only two things. What are they? Can you build a table with any hood from the vine? Can you make uh, cupboards from vine planks? The vine is good for only two things. What are they? Firehood. Fruit and firehood. That's the only thing. You either bear fruit or you burn. There's no other option for a vine. Uh, we know we made braai with um, vraver wortels. They work. But uh, a vine is only good for either bearing fruit or being worthless. And the burning of the vine that is uh, not bearing fruit is an indication of worthlessness. And so uh, it I think that the third view is far more um, correct within this context that it's not about losing your salvation and yes we will be uh, facing the judgment seat of Christ and we will be judged for, our, for the works done in this life but this I think applies more to the fact that it's showing the difference between a disciple as fruitful and not fruitful one that bears fruit and one that doesn't bear fruit and the whole point about this is that when we do bear fruit then the seven and eight kicks in if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This doesn't mean you can ask for a car, it doesn't mean that you can ask for a new home, or this doesn't mean you can ask for money in the bank. This asking is dependent, and based on the fact that you are abiding in Him. And if we are abiding in Christ, the things we pray for, will be in line with what we know would be a pleasing to him. Verse 8 By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So, the whole point of this passage is that the bearing of fruit in the life of a disciple is proof of life in the disciple, the life of Christ that pulsates through our veins, and that makes us uh, disciples that are true. It is impossible for a branch to bear any fruit if there's no contact with the life giving vine. The way to bear much fruit is for the branch to maintain unhindered fellowship with the vine by allowing the vine to have its way with the branch. The alternative would be resisting the Holy Spirit by neglecting and disobeying God. We need to understand clearly that as we live as disciples, not only do we uh, abide in His Word, but we also abide in Him. The truthfulness of, the, of that which we believe is reflected by the commitment we have to living in Him and for him and allowing him to govern the things that we do and say by being the one who uh, empowers us to live this life that we have. Um, time has beaten us. I'm not going to be able to finish this right. I'm going to stop right now. There's one more section I want to go on to, and then close with another couple of slides. So today I want us just to stop right here, and I'm going to take you to the last slide quickly. Um, Okay, so we said Mark to the true disciple is unwavering fidelity. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Proof of life, whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. And next week we will look at the third proof, love like Christ. And that will also be coming from John's Gospel where he introduces them to a new commandment where he says that if you love one another, by this will people know that you are my disciples. Any questions or comments? <coughs> Nothing. Good. We going to take a short break. Before we do, we have a word of prayer and we'll take a short break for three minutes. And then Wayne will start the music to bring us to our second session. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. We, grant, we pray you may grant us obedient hearts to live as disciples for Christ. That we may indeed live for him, reflect his work in our lives, in, uh, reflect his work in our lives and obey him in all things. We pray for grace to this, and in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen.